Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. It is hard to think of musical theater in the 1990s and early 2000s without thinking of today's guest. For so many of us, he was the voice we all wanted to emulate as we full-on belted and they're off in our dorm rooms. Uh, audiences have fallen in love with him on stage in A New Brain, Amore, the York revival of Merrily We Rolled Along, Hello Again, one of my favorites, Encores, The Boys from Syracuse, Macbeth, The Story of My Life, which was absolutely stunning, yes. uh, and on the small screen in uh, Caroline in the City, Blue Bloods, Grey Gardens, and so many more. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Barbara Cook, William Finn, James Lapine, Jessica Lang, Brian Bedford, and so many others, here is the one and only Malcolm Getz. Malcolm, how are you today? I'm really well, thank you. Thank you for having me on today. We are so happy to have you. I believe you are our first guest who went through the Yale University's MFA program. Yeah, really? Wow, that's I, th wow. I, th I think so. I think so. Wow. There might be a couple of others in there, but but I think you are you are striking me as one of our first, if not the first. So yeah. I'm curious, can you walk us through what that training program was like and yeah. what brought you there? Well, I grew up in Gainesville, Florida, which is where I'm currently at. I quarantined here. I went to the University of Florida at a very young age and I got a BFA in theater. There was no musical theater track. And from the beginning, I was doing half musicals, half non-musicals and a lot of classical theater. So I went to New York in 85. And the first job I got was, uh, no, no. I, yeah, I went to New York in 85 and did uh, Equity Library Theater. Remember that place? We did their play. Oh, ELT. Oh, yeah. We're, 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 yes, love ELT. So I did their playing our song and I couldn't deal with New York. So I came back to Florida and then I went back to New York again in 88 and I got, I got a job dancing at Radio City in the Christmas show. And there were 12 of us called the New Yorkers, six boys and six girls. And, and I was part of the reason I was hired is because I had acting credits on my, you know, uh, legitimate acting credits. So they made me the standby for Santa Claus and Scrooge and I danced in the show. And during that show, they had to build all of my wigs for Santa Claus and Scrooge. And so this woman, Laura Blood, who I owe a great debt to, she, uh, she built my wigs and it was sort of like therapy. I'd sit there for hours and so one day I said to her, I said, you know, I, I, I'm glad that I'm dancing in shows and stuff like that. I said, but I really feel like I'm, a, I'm an actor and I don't want to get stuck in this. She goes, you should go to Juilliard or Yale in one of those schools. And I was like, they'll never take me. And she goes, well, just audition. 
So I didn't tell a living soul. I didn't tell my boyfriend at the time. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell anyone because I never dreamed I'd get in. So I just slept on out to New Haven and I went up to Lincoln Center and I auditioned. And a month later, I got the news that I got in. Do you remember what pieces you did? Uh, that's a good question. I did Henry VI Part Three, And I wrote, yeah, I did a piece from something called Tribute by Bernard Slade. Yes. Jack yeah. Lemmon. It was written for Jack Lemmon. And, and in the play, he's dying of cancer. And he has a speech about the last line is something like, when a friend dies, you lose a friend. But when you die, you lose all your friends. And it was interesting. I've talked about it with students because, it, you know, I was what, what, I was 22 or 23 at the time. And it was right when all of my friends were starting to get sick. And, um, you know, it was just a terrible time. And there was such a, well, it was just awful. And so I just sort of connected on a quiet level to that piece. Nobody coached me on my pieces or anything. So anyway, I went, I got in, I showed up to Yale. And I thought if they find out I was just doing five shows a day with the Rockets, they're going to throw me out of my keister. So... <laughs> And then, of course, like by the first show, I was playing the clown in Twelfth Night, so singing the songs. And then we did Sweet Charity and Drag, my classic oh It was really good. We did it at the Yale Cabaret. And so I ended up singing and dancing in half the stuff I did there. But uh, there was somebody, there was a woman who was, I can't think, I got to think of her name. We'll have to look up her name. But there was a woman who went to Yale about seven years after me who had been in Les Mis and a bunch of shows. And um, she was a musical gal, too. But I knew a lot of the musical theater people who came out of Yale College. And at that time, it was, um, well, ahead of me was Vicki Clark, Ted Sperling, uh, Adam Gittell. Yep. And then during my time, Melissa Errico, um, Alessandro Navarro, is that Alessandro's mm -hmm. name? There were, there were a lot of talented people there at that time. So it was pretty life-changing. And then I got out and I got out and I didn't sing in my presentation. And two months later, I was doing a musical off Broadway. Like people just find out. Yeah. <laughs> as much as you try to hide that. Wow. That's incredible. So now were your parents supportive of you going into the arts? My parents are blitz babies. They, they are still with us. They're basically 90. They've been married 68 years. They grew up in London during the day. And my mother especially saw all the shows. So it's, so they, they were supportive. They were worried, but they were supportive. And, um, I used to say to them, I used to say, it's your fault because they had, I call them the big five, Oklahoma, Carousel, South Pacific, King and I and the Sound of Music record albums. And I started playing the piano classically very young and was doing that very intensely. And in my afternoon practice sessions for the piano, I would I'd play Bartok or Mozart or whatever for 45 minutes. And my mom in those days was a stay-at-home mom. And then I would just, I, I can pull things out of my head. I, I don't need music. And I would play If I Loved You. And she would sing as she walked around the house. So... Was it was it just you in the house, or were there siblings as well? No, no. <laughs> my children, my parents have four of us, and then uh, we were decidedly lower middle income, and uh, and we did not have a big house. It was two to a room, and uh, a lot of animals, like usually about three or four dogs, and usually about six or seven cats. Oh wow! And then horses that, at a different place. And now my that the sister who loved animals the most, my older sister Allison, she has a sixty acre farm in Charlotte, North Carolina. So. And it seems like you have a deep love of classical work. Where did that develop? At, at the university? Nobody's ever asked me that question before. Thank you. I'm glad you did. Because my parents, who also came from, you know, not financially well-off backgrounds, but they, but at that point in time, my mother quoted Shakespeare all the time to us. The, the thing my mother would say more than anything else, she'd say, this above all to thine own self be true. And then when I went to the sixth and seventh grade of this middle school here called Fort Clark, which is still here, we had this amazing guy named um, Mr. Cross, Donnie Cross, and he decided to do one hour condensed versions of Shakespeare. So in the sixth and seventh grade, I played Macbeth, Petruchio, 
so I, at a young age, it's like learning a foreign language. So by the time I was in the sixth grade, I wasn't daunted by Shakespeare okay. and, um, and did a lot of it with a professional theater in Gainesville, which is still here called the Hippodrome, which is a fantastic Lord D house. And they do fantastic work. And um, so by the time I went and, and going back to that Radio City story, it was one of those very old fashioned course, like course line type stories where there were a hundred and some of us and they whittled us down, whittled us down, whittled us down. And then they had about 25 of us in a room and they came up to me and they said, would you come in? And I went into the room and they were all sitting there and they say, did you really play Romeo? And I said, yeah. And they were like, did you really play Amadeus? And I said, yeah. And they're like, we read some sides for me. And I was like, sure. And so then they gave me the sides and I was like, oh, 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 well, children. And then we were like, and then they said, will you read this one? And I was like, well, Cratchit, you'll never get, you know, ah, humbug. And they were like, you are higher. <laughs> Any dances? I want to tell a story to your, for your students, which is when I was at Yale, Yale, Yale Drama has a, there's a professional theater there called Yale Repertory Theater, which is a great theater. And so occasionally they would put us in the shows, at the professional shows, usually in small parts. And my first year, Earl Gister was the man who ran the acting program at the time, and Earl a lot of very, very famous people owe their careers to, to Earl because he was heading that, that program and I loved him dearly, he's gone now. So er, they were doing Pygmalion directed by Doug Wager from um, the DC, the, uh, the, the Folger Theater. He was the artistic director mm -hmm. of the Folger. And um, Meg Simon, who's a fantastic casting director, um, she was the casting director at the time. So they came to me and they said, we want you to be a reader for these auditions for Pygmalion. So it was my first year and I sat up to the side and I do a pretty good English accent because of my parents. And I was just trying to be invisible. And we took a break and Doug came over and he said, you're fantastic, you're gonna play Freddie, Freddie Hill. And I was like, what? And then he said, I, Meg gave me a resume and I see you've done a lot of musicals. And I started to get really defensive and say like, well, yeah, and he goes, be quiet, be quiet. He goes, that's probably part of the reason you're good at Shaw. He said, because you're, you're a singer. And then later that happened with um, Mark Lemos when he was running Hartford Stage. He, um, he hired me to do The Merchant of Venice. And uh, Michael Rupert was in, was Antonio and I was Bassanio. There were other musical people. Judy Kuhn I worked with, except that was a musical. But Mark was very much of the same mind. He said he thought there was a correlation between actors who sing and actors who do verse. Mm. And, um, and do you agree with that correlation or do you see that correlation as well? Absolutely. My dream course, if, if I could teach a course that I would completely make up, it would be Shakespeare and Sondheim. Mm. Yes. That would be a marvelous yes. course if that could come parallel. off the ground. Completely yeah, parallel. When you um, when you approach, uh, we'll take actually we'll talk about a song for example if we can. When you approach a song, um, do you first begin by only looking at the lyric, or do you begin first looking at the musical composition, or is it a marriage of the two as you're starting to craft your your interpretation of it? As a pianist, I am completely moved by music more than words at first, usually, and so in my process, and that was something that I got from Yale. The teacher who probably, well, I won't say that, but one of the teachers who had an impact on me, her name is Virginia Ness. She was our voice teacher, as in Linklater, Alexander voice, not, not singing voice. And she, looking back now, I realized she would sort of have us meditate. We would have a start, quiet time, just getting into our bodies, checking in with our breath, and then you know starting really small, and then very internally, and then working out. And... Um, and that was the class that had the greatest impact on me, but it was also the hardest class for me because I had spent a lot of my young life running a million miles an hour and running away from things. And, uh, and she was challenging me to stay put in my own skin, which was not something that anybody had ever suggested to me before. So she had a technique that she called dropping in and you would sit in a chair and sort of like a good proper Alexander pose, just, you know, straight back, knees 
on the floor or feet on the floor, knees parallel. And um, we would sit in a chair and then you would take your text. We are such stuff as dreams are made on. So you'd be like, we, 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 we are, are, we are, we are such stuff, stuff, stuff. And you would just spend so much time like dropping in, trying to make sure the words were in your body in any sort of connotation. And I would do it when I was in class because everybody else would do it. And then Virginia would come to me and she'd say, make sure you're doing this at home. And I would think like, there's no way I'm going to sit by myself and just <laughs> stuck with my own thoughts. Right. But eventually, you know, over time I've slowed down. So, so that's a long winded way of saying I have to start with the lyrics because otherwise I would just go straight to making music. And that is a great and a glorious thing to have in one's possession. And, you know, you can tell, you can tell, I can tell students who are singers, but who are also musicians, you mm -hmm. can tell yeah. who really lives in music. And that's, that's an intoxicating thing. And um, I mean, one of, one of the things Mr. Sondheim said to me that most moved me was we did a workshop once and he said, he goes, he said, thank you, Malcolm. He said, I can tell you really love the music. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was open to interpretation in a lot of ways, but he's right. And um, so then I, so I try as long as, and I actually even start on a whisper with the lyrics and I'll treat it, and I do this with the students too. I'll, then I'll have them do it as text, out of rhythm, just you know, just as much as I can to get the, to, the text in their bodies before they start to sing. So I, it's, it, for me, it's really about slowing down my process and slowing down the students' process because most of them too want to sing, show off, you know, just do it. And yep. And you know, like I, I did have a student, a really, really good third-year uh, musical theater BFA student here from School of Theater and Dance, and uh, her name is Sophia, and she was doing the Divas Lament. And you know, at first when she was sort of like, you know, whatever happened to my show, whatever happened, you know, you think like, is this worth it? But it is. And the older I've gotten, I've started having memorization things. If, if the text is not in my body, I'll go up. Mm -hmm. So so there's multi-purpose for doing it that way. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's yeah, fantastic. And I'm sure a lot of our students will be able to, you know, glean from that. And that is hard, isn't it, to slow down, especially when you're young and you're just beginning um, your, your storytelling process. Do you still check, do you still check in with yourself and remind yourself, slow down, absorb the words, or have you found different ways of doing your technique as, uh, your career has gone on? Um, it's still pretty much that I have to slow down. I have to, I talk very quickly. I'm sort of a speedy person. So my goal is to be like Barack Obama, <laughs> who I think is the greatest public speaker of my lifetime. He's so thoughtful and I always say he's right in the thoughts. He's in the center of the thoughts and in the center of his voice. Like he's just so, it's like he's meditating and conveying thoughts at the same time. Yeah. So um, the only other thing I do sometimes is I'll try to memorize stuff when I'm exercising because ah. I'll get it in my body, like on a bike at the gym or, or driving sometimes. Mm. Um, so physical, it's about getting it in my body as opposed to my head. Because if I get stuck mm -hmm. in my head, we're in trouble. Absolutely. That's, that's, that is a universal, I think yeah. a universal dilemma. Yeah. So you, okay. So then tell us a little bit more about coming up to New York when you came up to New York. Um, the, was it, so I'm assuming it was two times, right? Once you did ELT, then you said, this isn't for me. You went back and then you came back a second time. Is that correct? Yeah. When I was six, my father, my father's company was based in New York for all the years we were traveling, even in Florida, he was still based in New York. So when I was six, we were walking up fifth Avenue or something. My mother says, and I was, jumping up and down. And I looked at her and I said, I like this place. This is where I'm going to live when I grow up. And she said, okay. And then I said, and I'm going to marry a Chinese lady, which hasn't <laughs> happened yet. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. You're still young, Malcolm. So <laughs> I know, you never know. 
<laughs> Sicilian man, Chinese lady. It's sort of <laughs> <laughs> so um, when I came back to do when I came back the second time, which was 88, everything fell into place like right away. I mean, I, I got I got the music hall. Then I got a production of Shenandoah at Paper Mill, directed mm. by Robert Johansson and choreographed by Susan Stroman. Okay, so I got a story. So I I danced pretty well. Like I I could I could I wasn't like Mr. Mustafa's, but I I could I could <laughs> dance. I, I could I was good enough that I got cast in dance roles. So I auditioned for Shenandoah, and at the same time, because of uh, uh, they're playing our song ELT, I actually got an agent out of that job. And he called me and they were reviving Gypsy with Tyne Daly. Mm-hmm. And so he said, you've got to, so the agent had a, an actual call for me to audition for Tulsa. And I said to him, I said, they're not going to cast me as Tulsa. It's just like, I can't tap that well. And he was like, this, this is a professional, you know, it's a Broadway show, you got to go. So I went to the Shenandoah audition on my own and we danced forever and Stroman was not there. I don't think Robert was there either. And then the day of my callback for Shenandoah was the day of my audition for Gypsy. So I went to 890, which was downtown to Gypsy. And I danced through the first couple of times they cut me, which I knew they would. I went tearing up to the Minskov for the Shenandoah callback. And I showed up and not only was Stroman there and Robert was there, but Stroman had taught a whole new combination. And I walked in and they kept all the guys in the room together. So there were like 70 guys in there doing this completely intricate combination. And I was talking with this cast director at the side. And he was like, well, I don't know what to tell you what to do. And Stroman goes, what's going on over there? And um, the cast director said, well, he came the other day and he danced and he had a call back. And she goes, do you remember the combination from the other day that Norman, his name was, her dance captain's name was Norman Kwai. And she said, do you remember the dance, the dance that you did with Norman the other day? And I said, I think so. And she goes, just do it. She said, Norman will do it with you. So, oh, to be young. I mean, like nowadays, oh. I'm from the room. But back then, I just had a lot of, I had a lot of moxie. Of course. So Norman and I started the routine and not only did I kill it, but he forgot it halfway through. So he stopped dancing. I mean, it's not so. <laughs> you were like, da, da, da. No, everybody in the room clapped. And so basically the second thing Susan Stroman ever said to me, she said, you got balls, kid. Oh. Yeah. So they cast yeah. me at Shenandoah. During Shenandoah is when I got accepted to Yale. Paper Mill kept me on for Showboat, which they televised with Eddie Bracken. And uh, that was a really oh, yeah. good production. It was a good production. And then I did Superstar, and then I went to Yale. So I actually, and then when I came back after school, everything went really well right from the start. Like I, 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 I went to Penn State. I, the head of my acting program at the University of Florida, Dr. Carol Brandt, left Florida, and yeah, I think she was the dean of the College of the Arts yes. at Penn State. And so I graduated Yale in the summer, in the spring of 92. And she called me and she said, come do George M. I mean, talk about, I, physically I was completely miscast because I'm six feet tall, but, but I went and I had the time of my life at Pennsylvania Center Stage. Is that what it's called? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, and I drank a lot of beer and partied really hard. And <laughs> you should, as you should at Penn State. Good. <laughs> and so I did the Penn State. And then during that, I got an audition for Juno by Mark Blitzstein, which Lonnie Price directed at the Vineyard, which was two blocks away from my apartment, which I still live in. And um, I did a film film tape like you do now, which back then you never did. No. We're talking 1992. So I put myself on film singing this arrangement that I concocted of Romeo and Juliet and uh, West Side Story, where I start off singing something's coming and it goes into Romeo and then it goes into Tonight. 
And it got me a callback, so I came into New York on my day off, and he cast me. So we did Juno, and it was um, Anita Gillette, and um, oh, so many good people. And it was, and I played, okay, so I played Johnny, the son. It's about the Irish troubles, and um, Johnny, the son, and I had one arm. So I had this this, my, my arm was underneath my sweater. I was this very tragic character who eventually gets shot at the end. And so I had one arm. During, during, <laughs> during, that, show, during that show, my agents called me and they say, we want you to audition for a, an opera called Martin Gare, not the Les Mis version. There was another version by Roger Ames and Laura Harrington. Oh. It's amazing what I can remember sometimes because so much. I know. I've so, never even heard of that before. It was really good. So I auditioned for Mark for Martin Gare and they cast me. So I go out to start Martin Gare. Now as a side note, the I was the I was the real Martin Gare, the one that starts the show and disappears and then comes back. Mm-hmm. Patrick Cassidy was the imposter of oh. Martin Gare and Judy Kuhn was the woman. Goddess. Oh. And she had, they, you know, I'd seen her on that Tony Awards where she sang rags and I was just like, oh my God. So. I, w- I didn't want to sing in front of her. I was so scared. <laughs> and this crazy song, this big aria about killing a bear. And one day, Sue Gron- Grondahl, who was married to a uh, Chris Grondahl, what? she was he, Chris was in it, and her his wife conducted it. And uh, we were, I was in a rehearsal room one day with her, and we were singing the song. And I turned around, and Judy was standing in the door. And Judy told me later that I put my hand up over my mouth. Judy is a dear friend of mine for all these years. So oh, that's so, fantastic. So the end of that story is that. At the table read for Martin Gare, at the auditions, I'd only read stuff in the first act. So we, at the table, I'm, I'm reading on the spot the script, and my character not only comes back at the end, but he comes back with one leg. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sensing a motif. So, and so my agent at the time, who went on to become a real hotshot agent at CAA, she came to see Martin Gare, and I remember standing outside with her, she was smoking, she's like, you've got one leg. And I said, I know, she goes, you just have one arm. And I was like, I know, she goes, everybody's going to think you're like New York's resident kid actor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really funny. That's really, really funny. Now, we, we always ask our guests this, when you were making the rounds in the city, what was your go-to audition song? Yeah, I, I kind of just, yeah. I, I was going to say, I was reading, I was, we were doing our research um, and you were the cover story of In Theater Magazine. And I was, I was reading this and in there you were mentioning um, your uh, West Side Story, Romeo yeah. and Juliet mashup, yeah. which is not a traditional okay. uh, way of auditioning. How did you come about that? And can you talk about that? Well, a bit? That's why I hesitated is because like, I, I don't know if this is the best thing to say to the students, but like there was something <laughs> in me, there was something in me that knew I needed to stick out, especially in the eight, 16 bars auditions. So I would come up with comedic stuff. Like I would rewrite song lyrics to the Brady Bunch or um, I would do Zing With The Strings Of My Heart. And then I would, it's so hard to explain. I would do this thing where I swatted my neck, that thing was a fly in my neck. Um, I would just, sometimes I'd sing Now I Have Everything from Fiddler or I'd sing Zing With The Strings Of My Heart for real. But I usually would put some jokey thing in. I was supposed to direct Spamalot at, at FSU five years ago and um, I, cast it, did all the pre-production and then got Macbeth on Broadway, so I had to pull out. But I did cast the show and the day of auditions, we had to see like a hundred students who were auditioning for the whole semester and they could either do 30 seconds of a monologue and 30 seconds of a song or six, and there was no piano. And the first thing I said when they said they were doing Spamalot was I said, hope you got a girl. Cause that part's so, so ruthless. 
And um, so I'm sitting there through this very long day and suddenly this girl comes out and she starts, she goes, and I am telling you. And she sang it the way you wanted to hear a song. Like immediately you were like, oh my God, that girl can honk. And she sang for like 25 seconds and she goes, stop, stop, stop. Who, how dare you? And she went into the word for Patti LuPone rant. Yeah, okay, that's genius. Throw him out, you have no respect. And I mean, she was like 19 years old and the other people around me didn't even understand what she was doing because they didn't know the Patti LuPone rant. <laughs> and I was like, we're done. I was like, this is brilliant. completely done. I was like, we are a cast. And so later in the day with the rest of the faculty, they're like, are you going to call back? And I was like, well, we, you know, you got to use that girl. And they're like, you need to call people back. Just And I was like, okay, we will. But like, <laughs> it's hers. she had the goods and it was so smart. It was so smart. It was so good because she had the goods to back it up. So even if people don't do come up with gimmicks, like what I do, I, I guess in a broader sense, what I'm saying is like, I try to help find students that's not overdone and that really shows them. Because I say to them, I'm like, look, if you can sing great, that's great. But how many times have you heard a great singer and for two seconds you think that person has an amazing voice, but there's nothing, there's no nothing. connection, nothing yeah. going on. So you yep. And then somebody will come in with a damaged voice or half the voice, but they're an amazing storyteller. And you're like, that person is incredible. So yep. especially when I'm in the musical theater programs, I'm like, you guys act, 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 act. Yes, of course, work on your voice, but always make sure you're maintaining your acting skills. Because storytellers. You know, Lapine, the, the people that I've worked with like that, I know there are people who probably sing better than me, whatever that means. But I, I once had James say to me, I've done like four shows with James. And one time he said to me, he goes, have you been taking voice lessons? I was like, yeah. And he goes, you're, oh, you're, you're singing too much. He goes, you, you're telling me you can sing. He goes, I hire you because you can act. He goes, just stop it. Huh. And, um, because I, you know, I got it. I was working with people like Norm Lewis. And so I thought I needed to catch up. Yeah. And he was like, stop it. Stop it. He's like, and I, and I've had that with students sometimes where I'm like, okay, I know you can sing. I, you're telling me you can sing. I see it. I see it. But like, mm -hmm. who are you? Actually, I want to ask you when you're that young and you don't know who you are, but the business mm -hmm. is saying you need to tell us who you are. How do you strike that balance? I really, I really am, have an awful opinion of type typing. And so many of the students, they're like, well, it's the reality. I'm an ingenue, or it's the reality. I'm a juvenile. And I'm like, you are, but you can be Malcolm Getz, the middle-aged character guy. You can be Kristen Chenoweth, the, you know, the, the ingenue. You, you can still, because most of the shows, most of the people I know that are the, most of the top directors in New York, they want people who can act and they want, and times have changed. I mean, Oklahoma was an extreme. I mean, you know, it's, it was hardly a traditional production, but like who wants to see, I don't want to see a really, I, I want to see a Julie Jordan or a Laurie who has some spine of a 20th, 21st century woman, not, not reconceiving the part, but, um, but sort of honoring the difference between, I feel like Bart Scher does an amazing job in his shows with that sort of yeah. honoring what Rogers and Hammerstein wrote or Lerner and Lowe, but finding people, I mean, very clearly at the end of Fair Lady with that ending, um, so, so for young people, I just encourage them to keep exploring who they are and make sure that they pick material that, that they connect to in the same way that I, I connected to that piece from Tribute at the time and I didn't consciously understand it. But in hindsight, I'm like, oh, I was losing all my friends and I wanted to say something about that. That must have come through. Instead of giving them like, oh, I'm 23-year-old future leading man and I'm going to do something and pretend to be Kevin Klein, you know. My, the most formative musical, in addition to the Rodgers and Hammerstein shows, the sh show that I probably go back to the most is Sunday in the Park with George. Mm. I mean, I, guess I really, I guess it's my favorite show. And 
I would say anything you do, let it come from you, then it will be new, give us more to see. It's like one of the most sort of haikuish, simple, mm -hmm. simplest, well, it's not simple, but it's so economical what he wrote. You know, the revival that really made me happy in these last few years was uh, Hello, Dolly. Oh, yeah. How come? Uh, it, it was so glorious to watch. Pat Midler was, I mean, that was insane. It was like, yeah. it was it was nuts. But like the ensemble was, um, the voices, the it was like old fashioned. It sounded like I thought this is what I used to listen to on the record albums. It was so, musically, it was so unbelievably overwhelming. And I thought the ography, the, the, the honoring the original uh, Gower Champion, but also like doing, was that Warren Carlisle? Yeah, Warren, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, it, and and I wanted to eat the sets and costumes. It was so delicious. <laughs> so you know, it was amazing. And uh, that that to More me, and I guess the reason I thought of it is because I was quite aware of who that ensemble was. Like I watched them as much as I watched the principals because they were short and fat and young and old and diverse. And you know, it was just it was yeah. really. I thought it was just a great, great, great evening. It was such a blast. What show did you do uh, in New York that made you think, oh, okay, this is this is starting to put me on the map. People are starting to notice me. When I did, uh, I was doing Merrily and Two Gentlemen in the Park for the Shakespeare Festival. We did Merrily, and then when Merrily was opened, I got the Shakespeare in the Park. And New York, the New York, New Yorker, the New Yorker magazine somebody gave it to me and it said, they called me the ever rising Malcolm Getz. Oh. Um, and Sondheim was really, really, really uh, supportive of me. When did you first uh, meet him or how did, that, how did that communication start? I just done Hello Again, which was, you know, Hello Again was, I think the New York Times- One of my favorite shows. <laughs> I, I agree. And I, I mean, love I, the I, score. I love the piece. I love the piece. The cast was ridiculous, and Graciela Daniel's okay. staging originally was like un unbelievable. She is, she's such an artist. Really. Um, so we were doing Hello Again, and I, I think in the back of my mind, I knew things were picking up, but it, I just I was also freaked out by that. Um, so I had an audition for the movie Jeffrey. Which, oh yes. Yeah, and Michelle Park. At the time, Michelle was married to Kevin McCollum, and. Uh, he was one of the producers of, of Steve and I came into the show when I did hello again and, and Michelle said, you're going to get, you're going to play Steve in the movie. And I was like, really? She goes, yeah. She said, as long as they can get somebody famous to play the boyfriend, they're going to say introducing Malcolm Getz. Then I got a call to audition for the Shakespeare in the park. And so I went to the Shakespeare in the park auditions, totally relaxed because I was like, I'm going to do this movie. And after my callback for Shakespeare in the park, I went to my agent's office, Philip Carlson. And I said, they're totally going to offer me Shakespeare in the park. I said, but it doesn't matter because I'm going to be playing Steve. And he goes, actually, Stephen Weber is going to be playing Steve. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, they decided they need a bigger name. So I went into the Shakespeare play. And when we started that, they said, we're going to revive Merrily We Roll Along. And my entire life, whenever the people will say, like, they're doing a show, I'll be like, oh, they should use Michael, uh, Michael Servers for that. Or they should use Raul for that. I always cast my friends or, you know, other people. Mm -hmm. They said they were doing Merrily. And I was like, that's, that's my part. And, <laughs> yeah. and I was like, that's, that's mine. So I managed to show up for Susan Shulman and from Penn State yeah. and, um, and Jay Bender and Michael Rafter and had a few auditions and got it. But Mr. Sondheim was writing passion. And um, he was, so he basically said to Susan, he said, he wanted approval. So they called me, they said, Sondheim has to approve you and he'd send hello again. He said, okay. So we started merrily. We had four 
blissful weeks of rehearsals. And then right before we moved to the theater, we were down on Lafayette across from the public immersive space. And we came in one morning and Mr. Sondheim was sitting there with Susan. And she goes, hi, everybody, Steve's here. And we're like, hi. And she goes, hey, we're just going to do a run through from the top of the show. It's 10 a.m. And um, she goes, we're just going to run the show from the top and just get, let him have a look. I goes, let's start. <laughs> and dun, 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 dun. And I was sitting, and I was the last person to come in the opening number. And they're like, and I was sitting there and I was like, I'm totally calm. I'm completely calm. I'm not nervous at all. And they're like, what did you get to be? Dun, dun, dun. I don't even remember what, what my first lyric line was, but the moment I stood up to start singing, I almost collapsed. Like I literally just stood up and I was like, and then we started the first scene with Michelle was Gussie. And we started that scene where they're just ripping each other to pieces. And he started laughing. And in like a very Virginia Woolf way, like because yep. it's so sick, like they're so cruel to each other. And it never occurred to me it would get laughter. And I was I was clever, smart enough to realize in that moment that he wasn't laughing at us, that I was like, oh, this is sick. It's really twisted. And that two and a half hours of running it for him alone in the rehearsal room was the best it ever was. When we when we got to a Good Thing Going, which is the first time I played the piano in the show, I think, that or growing up, but the first time I sat down to play uh, Good Thing Going. I literally looked at the keyboard and I was like, where's middle C? And then somehow my hands went, dun, dun, and I started playing it. And I, I was so present in that moment. And I was just like, this is the, so I'm sort of embarrassed to tell the story, but we finished and, um, and when we finished the run through, the stage manager said, okay, everybody take 15. And we were in a long rehearsal space. And there was, so I went all the way to the room in the back and then when they called us back, I waited another five minutes because I thought he might leave and I didn't want, I didn't want to have to be in the position of being around him so he had to say something or not say something. So I was coming back and he was crossing the elevator and he looks at me and he goes, hey, come here, come here, come here. And I said, hi, Mr. Sonny. And he goes, who are you? I said, well, my name is Malcolm. And he goes, no, I know your name. He goes, where do you come from? And I said, well, I was just at drama school. And he goes, how did you know how to play the piano? And I said, well, I was a classical pianist. And he said, oh my God, how I wish we had you when we created the show. Oh, oh wow. I called, and no disrespect to the other people who did it, but I called my mother sobbing and I was like, it's, it's mom, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, it's all good. It's all done. Yeah, no, it really was, so. Good morning, Mama. Liza, darling. We've got to help the boys it behind the curtain. Oh, Broadway's living legends. Oh, it's marvelous. Well, what, what would they like? Some cream of wheat? No, Mama, they want some money. Money? Well, let's send them a great big bag of money. No, all you have to do is go to patreon.com. You know, it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and, and you set up a monthly donation. Money makes a world go around, Mama. Oh, don't I know? Patreon.com. Do it now. You know, at this time that that this the, your your live theater career was really taking off, were you auditioning for for television and film yeah. at the same uh, concurrently? Yeah, absolutely. I did. Um, the first thing I did was a pilot for CBS, one uh, single camera comedy, which they didn't make up so much back then. Now they do them all the time. With Nicolette Sheridan, Lisa Dar, myself, Terry Kaiser, and it was called Incredible, and it was really silly. And during that job, they sent me to Miami to do a a one hour drama, which was on NBC for half a season called South Beach. I came back to New York and did Law and Order. I did a part in a movie that got cut called Mrs. Parker and the Round Table. And then 
that pilot season, I was doing the Moliere comedies at the roundabout with Brian Bedford. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was auditioning for, I always sort of straddled the lines going back to types. People were like, are you a leading man or are you a character guy? And, right. You know, and I was like, well, sort of. Oh, I'm Malcolm. <laughs> yeah, I'm an actor. Yeah, Malcolm, yeah. So they used to, I was auditioning for a lot of really boring, like Jim, John, you know, type. Right. And out of nowhere, I get this part that it says, looks like the guy from the Cranberries. So I went to Virgin Megastore, which doesn't exist anymore. And I pulled up the CD of the Cranberries and there were three, three, they were all in black and three of them, the, the girl and the two guys were sitting on this couch, hugging each other, laughing. And at the other side of the couch, completely removed, was this guy in black clothes with glasses. And he looked really dour and unhappy. And I started laughing. So I, I kind of, it's one of the few times that I acted in my audition. Like I knew if I went in and I was my normal, open, garrulous self. So I just went in and I barely said anything. And, um, and then for like a month, I had a thousand other, John Hickey, at the time we were very close. He said to me, he goes, you're going to get this. And I was like, you think so? And I'd call my agents every other day and I'd say, what about Carolina in the city? And they'd be like, yo, you haven't met me in other auditions. And then finally a month later they called and they said, okay, they want to test you for Carolina in the city and this other show. There were two shows they wanted to test me for. And I had to pick and I said, Carolina in the city. So we were doing the Moliere comedies and we closed the Moliere comedies on a Sunday. I flew to LA Sunday night did the test deal on Monday, flew back to New York Monday night, and Tuesday morning started rehearsals for the workshop of Triumph of Love by Jeffrey Stock and Susan Birkenhead. And uh, Michael Mayer was directing, and it was Judy Kuhn, Kevin Chamberlain, Brenda, ba Brenda Braxton, and uh, it was just like this ridiculous group. And I remember somewhere during the course of the morning, I thought, like, I don't care if I get the TV show. I was like, everything is good here. I'm so happy here. And Judy and I had the same manager at the time. And she spoke to our manager on lunch and she came back and she told Michael and Michael was like, everybody gather around. We have to tell Malcolm something. And it was one Michael goes, you got the pilot. And I was like, wow. And then Margot Lyons, who we lost, who was a fantastic producer. I mean, she was the greatest. Legendary. Woman. She was amazing. And she came over to me and she goes, do you really want to do a TV show? I was like, what do you mean? She goes, we're going to take the show to Broadway. Don't do the TV show. And I was like, Margot, I have $60,000 of student loans. And she was like, just do the play. And I was like, I think I'm going to stick with the TV show. Do the musical. Although at the time I knew like that they shoot a zillion pilots. And so I just thought I'd shoot the one episode and be done with it. Cause the chances of getting picked up, let alone going in the air were small and still let are. Let alone being a hit. I mean, really? Yeah. So then I went to LA in 95 and shot the pilot and, uh, Sang the whole time. Always got a great teacher in LA who lived across from the studio, Eric Vitro, who teaches everybody out there. And I would sing every day. Actually, what I we ended up doing was we would shoot our shows on a Friday, and so I would have a singing lesson Friday morning with Eric and get my my voice and everything going, and then go across and film the shows. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. 
You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This might be a little Pollyanna of a question, but was your dream, I mean, what was your dream when you were, you know, coming to New York? Was it to be on Broadway? Was it to be in the movies? Was it to, or did, or was it just to do solid work? I mean, it sounds like you, you just love the work. Um, no, and, and I, I think it was to do theater. I, I don't know that I, 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 I never, I had a lot of nerve, but I didn't have a lot of confidence. I, I had a lot of courage, but I was very insecure about my abilities and it didn't, it didn't stop me from taking risks and stuff like that, but I was always very insecure about my work. Hmm. I, I never dreamed I would get into a school like Yale. I never dreamed I would get to work with the people I worked with. So every step of the way, I was sort of like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. So I didn't have a clear vision when I came out of school. I just kind of kept taking what came along. Just work, yeah. That yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, and the TV and film thing, because now I also teach acting on camera. And, you know, my class, the people I was with at grad school were Leah Schreiber, Chris Bauer. I mean, a lot of people who all of us started to work on camera pretty quickly after we got out of school and we didn't have acting on camera classes back then. So now that I teach it, I, I, I try to be very, I mean, I hope this is true of all of my teaching, but I try to be really sparing about how much information to give them because all technique can, can be beneficial, but it's really just a means of, Martha Graham said something to the effect of technique is merely a means to free the spirit. And, and um, you know, the thing about technique, especially when you're in school, is it can start to make you subconscious. And she, Martha Graham also said subconsciousness is the, is the death of art. And um, so, it's, so with on-camera training, it's really a tricky line because you really cannot be subconscious on camera. You cannot be. Like, if somebody is, is subconscious, you can spot it like that. Now, I will say there were certain things that I didn't want to do. And I also want to say... Uh, well, I'll say a few things. The students, now when I teach the students, I was like, how did you have your career? And I'm like, I tried to do good work. Right. But, but, but actors, you know, what about like, how did you network to get an agent? And I'm like, I tried to do a good job in the play. And I think it's frustrating to them because they're like, they want to know the secret. And I'm like, guys, the secret is to try to be a good actor. I always had a singing teacher. I still do. I, I used to take, I part of the Actor Center, I take classes still. I take, you know, Shakespeare classes, I mean, I still study. And I, and I remember getting that from Shirley Knight, actually. Shirley Knight, who just died about a month ago, who was part of the actor's studio. I mean, she was like with Kazan and all those guys. And when I first got out of school, she said to me, she said, Malcolm, in my day when we were doing Sweeper of Youth on Broadway or whatever, she said, it never would have, never would have occurred to any of us, meaning Brando and all those people, she said, to not stay in class while we were working. And I found, especially when I got on television, which was sensational, but it really utilized so much less of me than I was used to using. I had to have a creative outlet because mm. the first year of the series, I just sort of tried to put all of my energy into it. And it, it's, it's 24 minutes of material. You know, my friend used to say we were the 24 minutes between commercials. And, and it was a wonderful creative experience, but it really didn't need as much work as I wanted to give it. So I learned to stay in classes and do other projects and, and that's how New Brain happened. Was it was just a reading that I, because I was during my first, I think our first and our second season of Caroline, I think. On a break. Yeah, I just, when I was coming back to New York on my breaks, and they called, and they're like, they've got this thing that Bill Finn wrote, and 
he had a brain aneurysm and he almost died. And so come in and do this reading. And I, and it was Graziella who I'd worked with in Hello Again. And James- Did you know Bill Finn's work before? Did you, were you familiar with uh, oh. William Finn? Yeah, I mean, that's the understatement of all time. When I was at Yale, Graziella was hired at Hartford Stage by Mark Lamos, and she did the first production where they put the two pieces together. Famously, yeah. And it was the most glorious. We went to see it in school. And at the back wall, right? With the, with the, uh, with the quilt. Oh, my God. Like, to say that I was like a shrine. I was keening at the end of the play. Like, I was literally speechless. And Graziella was teaching us those weeks she would come on her money off to teach the third years. We were the third years at Yale. And so fast forward two years later, when I came in for Hello Again, I did the I did the West Side Story thing and I finished and Ira Weitzman was sitting there with Michael John. And, and I, Grazie, I'm, when Graziella was teaching us, she gave an assignment one week that nobody did. And so she said, what should we do with class? And I said, well, I made up this sort of Bill Irwin movement piece. She goes, do it. So I did it. And she goes, you should be a choreographer. And I was like, so year and a half, two years later, when I was in the Hello Again audition room, she looked at me and she goes, how I? She goes, have you been in one of my shows? <laughs> and I said, no, I said, I, um, I, I studied with you at Yale. And she goes, oh, you were the, you're the old man because I did this movement piece that was like this little old guy and then he stepped out of his old skin. And, and then she goes, you were the best one. And so she kept <laughs> me. So when, when she called about New Brain, I said, sure. And I had actually done a workshop before New Brain with Lapine and Finn called Muscle. I've heard about this show, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Muscle, I think, was originally, I think Sondheim had a, had a go at it or thought about having a go at it because that was the story I remember. And somehow then it got in Bill's lap and James's lap. And Chris Sieber was the guy. I was his best friend. I want to say Barb Walsh was there. Jessica Walter played the mother and I remember there was a scene where we went, Cali, Cali, California, Cali, 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 California, Cali. and I was on rollerblades skating in circles. That's that's what I remember. And I remember I remember Chris had some song at the end where he was like supposed to be really built, and he looked in the mirror and he sang a song with like, this isn't the real me, like what happened to the little me or something like that. <laughs> so we did it. I guess we performed it and it it died a it, it went away. So, so I, I knew Bill and James a bit when we started New Brain. And um, the first cast was Nancy Dussault and Alan Campbell. And, um, and the first, and then we did a workshop the next summer and the workshop was so wonderful. It was so, mm. it was, it was sort of Fellini-esque and there was no sets and it was all imaginative. And I would like run around and do Scooby-Doo and then I'd plop in the bed. And I actually did it. Uh, 54 Below, a couple years ago, they did a new brain thing, and I pulled out this thing that used to be sung at the beginning of Sailing, which is called Cookie, where I'm eating Cookie in bed, and he and Roger and I have a fight, and then it, at the end of it, it goes right into Sailing, and they cut that, they cut the Cookie thing when, when we went into production. So, so yeah, we I worked on New Brain for two and a half years before we did it. Oh my. We did it. We did it during the hiatus from the second, the third, and fourth season of Caroline, and um, I'm as proud of that show as I am of anything in the world. Mostly because of the recording. It's a fantastic recording. We had so many challenges. Like I, I was going through some weird. I was. I started having bouts of stage anxiety, and I was like, it was. was, What do you mean? I started having terrible bouts of stage anxiety. Like it just seemed to like arise out of nowhere. Like um, I, I, looking back, I realized it was always there. 
but um, there was something about the size of New Brain, and and you know I'll share this too. I was always very disciplined, but I had started drinking more and more and more, mm-hmm. and just to like deal with like the stress of, and the and the and the all the self doubts and stuff like that. And it was kind of okay on the TV show because I didn't have to, you know. But then when I came back, so I quit drinking in '96. Fast forward to New Brain, which was in '98. And I think that like all that anxiety, which I'd sort of medicated away, just came roaring to the surface. That makes sense. Yeah. And so, and, and, you know, Bill Finn's music, I think maybe even more so than Mr. Sondheim, like his music just lives right. It just hits me where I live. Like Bill's music to me and lyrics are so, so emotional and so pure and so connected. And I think he's... I think he's underappreciated at times. I think he's a, a genius. I think he's a kook. But I think his music, I mean, I, put two guys in a room and have them sing, what would I do if I, no, no, and I just like die. And um, I just, his music kills me. So, and New Brain was one of the few times in my life when I was like totally connected. I mean, it was, I'd never had that experience before where I'd be like on stage and I felt like, oh, this is just coming through me. And I, I wish that uh, could happen more often, but that was like, that was like almost the entire time for that show. It just was. And so we opened and it was not well reviewed. And, um, mm. and then I missed some performances cause I got sick. Then the man who created Roger was also having vocal troubles and he had to stop out. So Norm actually didn't open the show. Norm, right. Norm we recorded the album before Norm did the show. Um, oh. yeah, the first time he had I mean, to learn it. Yeah. Yeah. He learned it for the album and then he went into the show and, um, and and then we it did not have a long run and um, but I that CD it's I I I, can't, I don't like to talk to myself I don't like to listen to myself but like okay so I was in I was in the New York Public Library the Library of uh, the Arts the one next to Lincoln Center mm-hmm. and you can watch shows if you make an appointment so I wanted to watch the show because I was thinking about writing something based on that and they put you in your little cubicle and you have your headsets on and. And I'm watching my show and I leaned back in my chair at one point and I looked at the monitor next to me at this girl sitting there and it was New Brain. And I was like, and so she saw me kind of like looking at it and then she goes, is that you? And I was like, yeah, that's me. And she goes, are you an actor? And I was like, yeah, I'm an actor. And then she goes, do you sing? <laughs> and I said, that's for you to decide. <laughs> and it reminded me of that moment of the producers when Zero Mustel goes, they all come to me. Why they all <laughs> God forbid she just said like, oh, you're fantastic, but no. So like I couldn't I couldn't hear what she was listening to, but I was I went back to my show and I thought, I'm gonna think so I thought I just want to see and they're all because I couldn't hear it. So I so I literally timed it. So I watched my show, watched my show, and then and they're off came on and I went like that and watched it. And I I'm embarrassed to say this, but like I watched it and I was like, oh, it's really good. And I couldn't even hear it. And I just thought, like, wow, you were just like living in it, you were just acting. So so then I was like, I'm never going to look at it again. <laughs> it is, it's, oh, it's wow. quite beautiful. It is quite beautiful. But, but it's a test. Thank God for albums. Thank God for CDs. Yes. Because you know I mean? that show, everybody does that show. I can't tell you how many times people come up to me and they're like, I was Gordo, I was Roger, I was, you know, and it's because of that CD, because that CD yep. is out there. Oh, yes. 
It's a, and it's a fabulous CD. And so while you were working out in Los Angeles, it seems like even though you were pretty much, I don't want to say confined, but that's what you were. You were confined to this television show. You were still able to keep yourself actively busy by taking the voice lessons, right? Were you also taking acting classes as well? Or was the the, the television that, that I primary? Do the I would do like weekend, like I did a weekend thing with Peter Hall, Sir Peter Hall. We did a Shakespeare intensive. I would do things like that. And, um, and I did a ton of benefits. Like all the, the, all the New Yorkers in LA, Nancy Dussault, like Karen Morrow. Uh, Speaking of live recordings, we love those CDs. I mean, some of those are really special. Yeah. We would all do these benefits and everybody would sit around for days and just like say, what's going on? You've been to New York, what are you doing? And uh, it was a lot of fun, but the, the musical people in LA are just, the theater people are just so hungry to do theater that they do benefits, they do anything. We would show up at the drop of a hat as it were, so. But yeah, I, I pretty much came back to New York every hiatus. And then when the show was in, the show ended in the spring of 99, 2000. And I just didn't think twice about it. I just came back to New York. Later, people were like, why didn't you stay in California? And I was like, because New York's my home. So. Right. Yeah. Right. And coming back to the stage, coming back to the stage. Yeah. Yeah. Like a month after I got back to New York, I was running for a cab and I was holding a box and this cab pulled up next to me and then somebody jumped in the way and stole my cab. And while, they, and while they were doing it, I went to move and I dropped my box and things shattered. I thought like, what have I done? Why did I come back to this cruel, mean city? But, um, and then, you know, I had a house out there for a while and I went back and forth and I love Los Angeles and I really enjoy working on camera, but, but I'm a New York. So you, you came back to New York and, uh, well, I mean, you, the, one of the next pieces, I mean, on, on, at least on, on our files is, is a more, I mean, with this, this beautiful little, I think I saw it, I loved it. I thought it was an absolutely beautiful show. Uh, this little gem of, of a little musical. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, again, it was James Pine. God love James. His shows about such an, I mean, to say they've had an indelible mark in my life is an understatement, mm -hmm. but he's been very, very good to me. So they call about doing a reading, and the first reading was just like a standard, the, the music uh, stands and sing. And it was a different leading lady who I kind of want to tell you who it was, but I don't know if I should. And because um, I don't know why she didn't continue with the show, I, I don't know why. But we did that first reading, and then we did a workshop, and it was the same thing with New Brain. Like the workshop was just this wildly inventive. You know, I was supposed to be stuck in walls and I don't even remember what we did in the workshop, but it was all imagined and suggestive. And uh, and I just like didn't I didn't think about it. I just went with it. And, and I also want to say, that in addition to Michelle Legrand, who wrote such a beautiful score, that Jeremy Sams did a translation from uh, from the French that I think it was pretty, pretty groovy, pretty great. And of course, that's when Melissa Erico got involved. And Melissa's like, I knew Melissa a little bit at school because she was an undergrad. And um, she's one of my best friends, and she's a great talent, obviously, and a lovely lady. Yes. And Chris Fitzgerald was in it, and Norm Lewis, and... Uh, Someone we just lost, like, last year, uh, or two years ago, Nor Nor Nora May, uh, Nora May Ling. She, she was one of the creators of uh, Forbidden Broadway. That's right, yeah. Great talent. Yeah, Absolutely real talent. fabulous. Um, so we did the workshop, and then... They, I, I don't know if I dreamed this or if they told us this, but I thought we were going to open to the public. And then I think I think Lapine, I think, I could be wrong. Somebody wanted to do it at the public, but Jerry Schoenfeld, who ran the Schubert's, wanted to do it on Broadway. So they, they met an impasse, and then the project was canceled. <laughs> and then they were reviving Into the Woods, and I saw James, and James goes, you should come in for Into the Woods. And I said, but I'm 
kind of not a baker, I'm kind of not a prince. And he goes, just come in and sing. So I went in and I, they wanted us to sing, no more questions, please, no more tests. And so I was rehearsing with Paul Gemignani ahead of time and I said, hey, can I sing the whole thing? He goes, what do you mean? I said, can I sing the running away? Like, like I said, her Manny Patinkin can do it that way. And Paul goes, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> and so I went out and I started, no more questions, please, no more questions. Come to the day, sing, please, no more. And then it was supposed to cut to the end and I went, running away, we'll do it. And I saw Sondheim go like this. And I, <laughs> and I saw James go like this, chill out. Oh, I, I came in with a hat. I came in with a hat. I had this brown cap that looked like the Baker's cap. It was like this Hershey's Kisses thing. And so I came in with it on for my audition and Sondheim, who I love, but he, he's, he's got a needling sense of humor. He goes, look, he brought a silly hat. And it made me feel really subconscious. And James goes, just let him wear the hat. So, so there was a little bit of, you know. So when I- Testing you, testing a, you a little bit. So when I kept singing the song, that's when Steve sat forward and James sort of pushed him back. And I finished it and Steve said, that was good. And um, so then they gave me a call back and I talked to James about it. And James said, he said, I want to do something different than what we did the first time. And I thought, well, maybe they'll use me. And he didn't. He used Stephen, uh, Stephen DeRosa, who I went to Yale with, who was fantastic. And he was totally the right guy for the party. He was wonderful. And then more all came back to life. And then they said, we're going to do it on Broadway. And we were like, OK. So we went into Broadway, and uh, we rehearsed it. And it was all consuming. It was so, because um, it was 90 minutes, and I don't think I ever left the stage. I got James to let me leave the stage at one point, And he said, why? And I said, because I've got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> But there was water on the upstage side of the, side of the bed. Like, just, I never left the stage. Yeah. I have a fantastic more story. So Scott Pass, who is, I think, unarguably the tops, the, you know, the, the most prolific and brilliant set designer, one of the greatest set designers of our time. That was earlier in Scott's career. And the first preview, the first preview, I was singing to the audience. I was downstage left and I was saying, this journey home alone is what I was known. My feet could do it on the and, and then I heard this screaming and the stage right set collapsed, fell into the audience and cracked over the orchestra rail and nobody got hurt, but it was like, it was loud and it was scary and it was big. Oh, wow. And, and so people were like, ah! And so we are like, and we went backstage and we are like, oh my God. And we stood there for 15 minutes and James comes back and he's like, should we keep going or should we keep cancel the show? And we were like, keep going. <laughs> so then James goes on and he's like, we're going to keep going. And the audience is like, yeah. So I walk out downstage left and I'm not thinking it. And I, they're like, and I go, this journey home alone is what I've always known. My feet could do it on their own, but it's different tonight. I love those moments the, in the, the theater. Post log to that story is that uh, Scott told me that he called Bob Crowley, who's a brilliant designer in London, has done everything was his mentor and he said he called Bob and woke Bob up in the middle of the night in England and he said my career is over and Bob's like your career is not over oh. Scott's career did not end with that show so no. but we yeah it was it was a heartbreaker because yeah Amor and the story of my life are similar in that both of those shows I thought Broadway could use a little show like this yes and I remember going with Michelle Legrand to see Hairspray which was fantastic and we finished watching the show and Michelle said, I don't know if they're going to make room for our show. And I was like, no, of course they will. I said, it, it's uh, so different. They need a contrast. And he's like, I don't know if it, and he was right. It's people just, and that was the same with story of my life. Like we did story of my life in Connecticut and we did readings of it. It was always me and Will. And 
and we did previews at, at uh, the, the booth and people were like, we love your show, we love your show. And then the next day the critics were like, it's name it was gone. So, so it's a bummer, but uh, it is a bummer. You, but thank God for albums and, uh, and so, absolutely. Absolutely. And hopefully story of my life will come back. It's at some point in some incarnation. I want to direct it. I, I keep thinking I should do it with the students because they're the right age. And, you know, and I, I will say, I thought that Richard Malpe's direction was perfect. I just felt like the way he conceived it and the designers and the way the imagining of the world was great. So. Yeah. It's, but it's, it's a beautiful piece. And if our listeners are unaware of it, uh, please become aware of it. Cause it is, it is stunning. I, I was yeah. I saw it in previews and I was so moved by it and I thought oh this is going to be this will be around forever this will be a long one Neil Bartram and Brian Hill Neil yeah Bartram, Brian Hill the writers yeah yeah wonderful guys great writers do you read reviews no no I I've read a few at times I, a few years ago I was really down and my mother sent me a copy of Ben Bradley's review of Amore. And some at one point somebody sent me a review of John Simon's review of A New Brain. John Simon, who was so lonesome, but he gave me this crazy rave, A New Brain. So there are times that I've like people have like given them to me because I was having a down period. Right. Um, I remember once I had a shrink who uh I was doing a play at Playwrights Horizons, a non-musical, and I was temporarily seeing the shrink, and I came in to see him one morning and he goes, how are you doing? And I said, good. And he goes, your show opened last night, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, so the review, the paper was sitting on his desk. He goes, so the review is in here. And I was like, yeah, I don't read it. And he goes, here, read it. And I was like, what? And he goes, just read the review. And I was like, so there were only four of us in the play. And I started to read oh. the review. And halfway through the review, I was like, this is a stupid review. And because he didn't really like the play and he didn't really kill the actors, but I was, I was reading it and I got, and I, his point was sort of well taken, which was, I was able to sort of step away from it and be like, I don't agree at all with what this man wrote. Like I did not agree at all with what he wrote. But Judy Dench once said, and I feel the same way, the bad ones make you feel bad and the good ones make you self-conscious. <laughs> because you know, like that moment when she sings, touch me, it's so easy to leave me. And then that night you're like, touch me, this is what he was talking about. <laughs> In your head, yeah, totally. And Peter Frischad is a great actor. He once said to me, he goes, they're not written for us. They're written for other people who are not written for us. Now I will say, I've been in shows, when we did the Boys from Syracuse at Encore's, the re review came out on a Saturday and I got up and I was like, and it was going so well. And I was having such a good time. And I was like, I'm not going to read the review. And I went to the theater and somebody in the cast came over and said, I don't think you sound too contemporary. <laughs> <laughs> so people have a way of like letting you know, you know what I mean? Oh yes. Of course. Of course. That album, the boys from Syracuse album is fantastic. That was the best. That was the best. I mean, it was like that. I love Encore so much, but like, I still think they should go back to holding books. I do, I do, I do. Because the last one I did, Irma LaDuce, which was, I was not supposed to do. And the guy who was going to play the part, who'd been announced for six months, had to pull out a week before rehearsal started. So with 12 days, I was like, I had to learn that part, which was all monologues. And, and it was impossible. For, and, and I just feel like that the expectation from the audience is not, oh, they've only had 10 days. It's like, we're going to see a Broadway show. Right. It's rehearsed. Yeah. When we did Boys from Syracuse, I sang this song. And in the middle, I had a dance break, like Gene Kelly-ish. And I would just hold the script. And I, the script became my dancing partner. And I, I just feel like it's it was better because... Because otherwise we're, we're getting like, it's getting me more, more and more like productions, full on productions. Right. And, and, and I feel like it's, it's, it's too much stress for the actor. 
Yeah. Well, no, and I was going to say it's hard for you to invest, I think, with so little memorization time and yeah. so little, you know, it, it it's hard. That's very difficult. Well, I think Stock. They cast, so, they cast them so far ahead of time that people supposedly have time to learn it, but still you're only in a rehearsal room for eight days. And then you go up in front of like the A-list New Yorkers and it's, so it's hard. But that Boys of Syracuse <laughs> was the greatest cast. It was a complete laugh fest and Kathleen Marshall, everybody, Rob Fisher, it was heavenly. Yeah, it's a wonderful album if you've not listened to it. So now you teach, uh, it seems, at a, a bunch of different institutions, I feel, right? You're, you're all over the place, right? Yeah. So I have this friend who's taught in Juilliard Drama Division and NYU Graduate Acting concurrently for 30 years. Her name is Deb Lapidus, Deborah Lapidus. She's a genius teacher, and she's one of my absolute closest friends. And she and I got thrown together in 94 or something. We did a workshop together, and she said to me, she was the musical director and she's like, why, how do you read music so quickly? And I was like, I'm a pianist. So right about the time that my theater career was taking off, I was still in debt and, and all the shows I was doing, which was the Vineyard, New York Shakespeare Festival, they were all like very classy projects, but none of them paid much money. <laughs> so, so I said to Deb, I said, look, I said, if you ever need a pianist for one of your classes, because I can sight read like a banshee. So I started playing for Deb's classes and the story she loves to tell was that I was doing Two Gentlemen of Rona in the park. I got an OB for it. It was going very well. And the guy who played Valentine and several, several of the guys in the ensemble were recent NYU grads. So I would be in Deb's class and somebody would come over with music and they'd be like, I'm going to sing an A flat. Are, are you the guy that played Produce in the Park? And I'd be like, yeah. And they'd be like, what key? You know? <laughs> Kids would be like, why are you here? And I was like, because I need the money. And they were like, oh, it's not going to be as easy as I thought. So I played for their classes. I went to LA for five years. I came back. We started hanging out again. She'd be like, she'd be like, come sit through class with me. I'd sit through class and she'd be like, what do you think, Malcolm? Then one day she was like, I can't teach in class on Tuesday. We teach for me. And I was like, sure. It just happened so organically. Then, then there came a point. She's like, I'm going to take a semester off. Will you teach for me the whole semester? And I was like, sure. So I taught a lot at MLU graduate, graduate acting. And then I Sub for her only a couple times at Juilliard, but I played piano for her classes. And then what I did the most of was every fall, they do a cabaret with the grad acting students. And then every spring, they do a cabaret with the Juilliard acting students. The second year MFAs at NYU and the third year MFA BFAs at Juilliard. And I just started staging and co-directing the shows with her. So I know a lot of those kids, Daniel Brooks, I mean, just some amazing students that I worked with when they were 19. And, um, and then I taught a bit at New Studio on Broadway from Michael McElroy. And, um, and then I taught a lot of master classes. And then three and a half years ago, uh, the dean of the College of the Arts of the University of Florida was in New York and she saw Macbeth. And we went for lunch afterwards and I think she was gonna try to hit me up for some money. And she was sort of like, how are you? And I was in that, you know, maudlin actor place of like, well, I'm, you know, kind of sick of doing eight shows a week. And, uh, you know, I'm playing a lot of boring doctors and lawyers on, TV and and so she called me a month later. And she goes, "How would you like to teach at U of F for three years?" And I was just like, "I am not going back to Gainesville, Florida." And my husband, who was very wise, he immediately said, "He said I think you should stay open to this." And I said, "Why?" And he goes, "Because he said I think that creatively it could it could really mix things up for you." And our parents were here, living in the house we grew up in, and it was getting very great gardens. So so I came down three years ago, and I've had the time of my life and. Oh, yeah. And it's been it's great. And I feel like I'm it's such a big learning curve as a teacher. Like what I did in New York, I, it was just that like here I'm teaching acting on camera, Shakespeare, singing for the actor, 
I have to come up with syllabi. Right. <laughs> I have to grade them. I have to give them reading assignments and stuff like that. And it's it's interesting because now I'm I worked intuitively for so many years, and and it goes back to what I said a long time ago. As far as like my my goal as a teacher is to say less, because my first year I was like sort of talking everything out, and now I'm because I believe in I also believe in mystery, and I think um I was directing Macbeth before the the pandemic happened. We were four weeks into rehearsals for the production. And one day, some, one of the students was like, why are you whispering your notes to the other actors? And I said, because I think that if you give a note in front of everybody, like you need to, da, 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 then it's in the air and then you're just playing the note and everybody knows it. Whereas if you give an actor a private note, you say, try to get her, try to make her feel a little bit angry or something. The other actor will be like, what did he say to her? And then they're just in the moment, not knowing what's coming at them. Because the thing that, the, the thing that I, feel about theater and film and TV is that like, how do you make it alive every night? How do you keep it alive? How do you keep it fresh? And um, I think before I went to graduate school, I was a very consistent actor and that's a good thing. I think when I came out of school, what started with my, that voice teacher was I started being much more in the moment. Mm. I feel a little bit like my performance has got a little less consistent. <laughs> um, but I think that, uh, I think that I could not, I was not able to work in film and TV until I started being more present and in the moment. So I, I practice that and I have my students practice that. I tell them to sit for five minutes a day and just like focus on their breath and just let their thoughts do what they're going to do. And just, mm -hmm. I, 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 I have them practice being present. And I think in these times, that's, that's so yeah, needed. Yeah, I think that's so really needed important. at these times. Yeah, I've been giving, giving a big shout out to Dan Harris, who is a news reporter. Uh, there's a better word than reporter, but he's a news consultant, whatever you call him, he's a news commentator. Mm -hmm. for ABC News and he pretty famously about eight years ago went up on on Good Morning America and had a panic attack and um, and he still works for ABC and he wrote this book a year or so ago called 10% Happier and he's been on every single talk show promoting it and he, basically he the premise is he said that he he wanted to study meditation and and explore his breathing and he went to Deepak Chopra and he went to all the big famous people and he found them not helpful. And um, he finally found this woman named Sharon Salzberg, who's also on the internet. And and he his he said that he feels like meditation makes his life 10% happier. And he, he talks about it, the most basic, simple form of sitting and following one's breath, which is what I need. So if anybody wants to explore further, look for Dan Harris. Dan Harris, great. And we'll, we'll post that for our listeners as well. Yeah, thank you. Malcolm, this has been an absolute pleasure. I cannot even tell you how much yeah. we appreciate all the wonderful insight you've given us today, but also all the beautiful performances you've created in the theater. It's 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 such a joy to always see you on stage and I can't wait to see, I can't wait for us all to return back to a theater again okay. to keep storytelling. But Malcolm, thank you so much for everything. Thank you for having me. You guys have made my day, so thank you. Oh, please. Us too. Thank you. You have made ours. All right, everyone, till next time. Bye everyone. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. 
And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right? Back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was batty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already did. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.